Well, good morning, friends. How are we doing? We're about to become a church today. Here's why. After 18 years, we're going to finally teach Philippians. I have, uh, I've taught through Minor Prophets. We've taught through the entire Gospel of Mark, of John, of Colossians. We did a, we've done um, Galatians. We've done uh, just book after book after book after book. And I've never done Philippians. And I think the reason is because that's the book that everybody kind of goes, well, you're going to do Philippians, right? Everybody does Philippians. Some of you guys have been reading, you know, Philippians every day of your life since you began. And it's just one of those verses we go back to again and again. If you have not memorized a verse from this book, you have not been a believer very long. It's that common. <laughs> and it's just one of those places that uh, we find ourselves gravitated to. I actually did teach a little uh, of Philippians to our body. It was when we used to do these things called family camps up in Colorado. We'd take away when our church was smaller almost about 30% of our body would go to Colorado and hang out. And one of those weeks that we were up there, I taught through Philippians during the entire week. It was amazing. By the way, uh, Plano and I think maybe even Fort Worth are going to do one of those again uh, coming up next year. So get ready to spend your summer with just some community of friends there, which would be an awesome thing. But I love this book. I love this book. If I wrote a letter to this church, it would be like Philippians. It wouldn't be uh, a doctrinal letter. There's lots of places you can get great doctrine and man, we need to know doctrine. But I wouldn't write, write you a Romans, okay? I wouldn't, I wouldn't write you uh, a, a book on ecclesiology, which is really what Ephesians is. I wouldn't write you a book about the philosophy of the day and how you need to um, not be duped by it. There are other good resources out there about that. If I wrote this church a letter, it would be like Philippians. It's actually the only letter that Paul wrote that doesn't really have a rebuke in it. It's a love letter. It's a letter where he's just telling you, you're, you are my, you're my people, you're, you're, your hearts are with me. We, we started this whole thing together. I'm gonna to show you exactly what I mean by that. It was Paul's letter to friends, just telling them how much he, he loved them. In fact, I, I did write a book. I don't know if you guys heard this, right? I wrote a book called Come and See, and I dedicated it to you. You know, when you write a book, you get to do that, right? And when you write a book, you gotta go, man, I'm gonna dedicate it. If you're smart, you're gonna dedicate it to your wife, all right? And I'm not an idiot, I still want her to sleep with me, so I did say something about her in here, all right? But the dedication of this book is to you. Let me just read it to you. This book is dedicated to the thousands of friends who, like I do, call Watermark their home. And who so patiently admonish, encourage, and help me more fully experience the life I've always wanted. You all are living examples of all that I have written about in this book. May the Lord multiply your kind all over the earth. I have, I have been blessed. My family has grown here. My kids love the church because of this group of people. Paul's writing a letter to friends like that. I'm going to talk about that actually here in a little bit. But let me tell you why else this is such a great book. Because it deals with the number one thing that you have self-declared is the thing you'd like to hear more about, specifically our porch crowd. We, we ask them a lot, hey, if we could teach on anything. We, we do different kinds of series at the porch. We, we teach in short little um, snippets here and there, and we teach a lot of topical stuff. And even when we do a book, we go through it kind of on a 30,000-foot level. But when we ask them, what is the thing you'd want us to teach about, you would think they would say, man, dating, you know, how to land, how to land somebody, Right? how to close this that chapter of our life and move on. Um, or hey, man, just how to, how to um, handle money and the pressures, how to adult or how to um, you know, just 
advanced in my career. You'd think it'd be something like that, but you know what the number one thing our young adult community wants us to teach about? How to handle despair, anxiety, and discouragement. Our country has never seen so many people on antidepressant meds. Our culture has never seen so many people struggling with whether or not this life is worth living. And Philippians is the perfect book for our world. Because what Paul's writing to them and he's telling them is, listen, I have the antidote to your despair. I know what the problem is. Let me remind you what you need. Let me remind you who you are. And he's specifically writing to his friends that have come to understand the hope that we have in this world. Let me just explain something to you. This world is not perfect. Paul doesn't write this letter from a position of privilege. He writes it from jail. The first time Paul was in prison, in fact, we just got through the last book we, we went through um, was the book of Acts. These are the last verses in the book of Acts. Are you ready? This is Acts chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. He says this. It says, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters. That sounds pretty sweet, right? No. <laughs> they made him pay for where they held him. He was chained to guards. He was under house arrest. And was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. They didn't have those little ankle bracelets where if you left your house, they'd go beep, beep, beep. So they just change you to a guard. And these are the last uh, recorded words in the book of Acts. Now, now, Paul was eventually released from prison and he probably went and visited his friends in Philippi and some other places. Then eventually was rearrested again and beheaded. But this, this room was not... Um, this, this book was not written from a place of privilege. It was written from prison, along with Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. They're what's called the prison epistles. And what you're going to find out is that Paul primarily wrote this letter because the Philippians who heard and knew that Paul had been um, falsely accused and was in prison had sent a gift through their pastor, Epaphroditus, who brought the gift to Paul that was in prison. This is basically a thank you letter. And these people love Paul, and they were filled with sorrow because of what Paul was going through. And Paul just says, hey, man, it's all good. It's all good because God's in control and I'm not really sure how this is going to turn out. I think this one's going to be okay because I don't think those folks that accuse me are going to want to come all the way here to Rome and testify against me because they know they don't have a case. But he just said, let me just tell you something. Even though I'm in prison, even though that my environment isn't exactly like I want it to be, even though my possessions have been stripped, even though the pattern of my life story has a lot of beatings in it, it's all good. This last week, I was, um, uh, last weekend, I wasn't with you guys because I was teaching at a conference in Mexico City. And uh, people heard I went down there and taught Saturday and Sunday in Mexico City. I go, man, weren't you, I mean, Mexico City, that's a little rough right now. Are you a little concerned? I go, no, I was frankly a little discouraged that some drug cartel didn't catch me, throw a burlap sack over my head and cut my head off. Because had they, I'd have been home, right? Uh, I, I would have missed not getting to teach Philippians to you all and enjoying that, but like, hey man, I don't care. Right, or I had a few you know, scars on me and I'd come back and I had a great story. Now listen, that sounds a little bit, I don't know, sadistic. Uh, I don't know what it sounds like. All I'm just telling you is I was in Mexico City. I wasn't down there picking fights or walking around late at night or talking about the evils of drug cartels. I was, I was sharing Christ, encouraging folks, equipping the, the Spanish church and doing everything, the Spanish speaking church, I was doing everything that I could just to advance the kingdom and I wasn't really concerned what happened to me. That's basically Paul's attitude. And this book will encourage you. It will strengthen 
your heart. Because this world is not as it should be. Can I just remind you of this? This world isn't the world that your God wants you to live in. It is the world that we have given that we have rejected God as our lover and king and redeemer and source of life. And so listen, God can't offer you what you don't, uh, what doesn't exist. He can't give you what doesn't exist. What doesn't exist is life and hope and peace apart from him. And so when you leave the God who is life, you're gonna move towards death. When you leave the God who is light, you're gonna move towards darkness. When you leave the God that is love, you're gonna move towards hate. When you leave the God who is peace, you're gonna move towards despair. And we live in a world that has moved away from God. And so the world's trying to find peace and meaning. To live is money, success, family, all the other things. No, Paul is writing and saying, listen, to live is Christ. And when you live with Christ in this world, you'll understand why you're here, while the world's all spun up, while sometimes you're in prison, while sometimes you have no possessions, while sometimes people betray you. All these things exist in Philippians. And Paul uses one word once about every eight verses. The word is joy. Some people say this is the gospel of, of joy, and it really, or, or the, the, the pastoral epistle of joy, and it really isn't. It's the gospel of Christ. Because joy, though it appears... Um, 16 times in 104 verses, Jesus appears 50 times in 104 verses. It is Jesus, 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 because if you try and find life apart from Jesus, you're just not going to find it. Um, Paul himself was trying to be a zealous religious man. This book is, has the greatest detail of Paul's life of any book, even though they know him the most, because he's just reminding them that in Christ alone is our righteousness. And Paul was trying to find righteousness by being a zealot for God. He was actually killing people who proclaimed the hope and love of Jesus Christ. And what Jesus said to Paul was, Paul, in vain do you kick against the goads, G-O-A-D-S, goads. We don't know what a goad is because most of us aren't ranchers. But a goad is basically a long stick, longer than whatever beast of burden you are trying to drive or shepherd. And what you would do is you'd take that goad, that stick, and you would put it, let's just say you're behind an ox, it would be a longer goad because an ox has a longer leg and the ox isn't moving, you would take that stick and you would put it right in his tender backside. And if that happens, you're gonna go, hey, and if you're an ox, you're gonna kick, right? Like, this ain't good, this ain't good, stop it. But you're gonna realize you kick kicking air. Like, what's back there, what hurts? And eventually you're gonna move. In vain do you kick against the goads. And what God's saying is, hey guys, the game is rigged. In vain do you kick against me. You can't find life apart from me. And so Paul is reminding the church that as long as you try and find peace apart from God in this broken world, you're going to have trouble in the world. When the Bible talks about joy, it says you can have joy in the midst of trials. Some people say, hey, the Bible doesn't talk about happiness. It talks about joy. That's a lie. The Bible talks about happiness all the time. The very first words out of God's mouth when he showed up in the person of Jesus, he goes, you want to be happy? That's the word blessed then you just gotta stop thinking you can figure out life on your own. And you'll experience the kingdom of God, the kingdom of love and light and peace. You wanna be happy? Blessed are those that mourn over their brokenness and inability to find life on their own. You wanna be happy? Be gentle and meek, let me lead you. You wanna be happy? Live with purpose, suffer for righteousness sake. 
Jesus is telling you how to be happy. Now he tells you there's going to be some happenings in this world, even if you serve me, that you're not going to like. But don't let that bother you because you can still have joy. Okay, so happiness does have in its root the same idea as the word happenings. And what God wants you to know is there is no happenstance that's happening here. This is a story that he's working out in the midst of history, revealing who he is, and there's a lot of happenings on this earth that break his heart. And he wants to explain why they're here. He wants to redeem you out of being the reason that they're here, and he wants you to call others out of the judgment that's going to come because of the trouble that is here. And he did that for the very first time in a completely new landmass in Philippi. Let me show you a little map here. This is Paul's second missionary journey, in effect. He left his home church, which is there in Antioch, and um, he kind of went up and he revisited some of the churches that he started in what's called the Galatian region. That big uh, area right there with Antioch in the middle of it, that's modern-day Turkey, okay? You can see where Jerusalem is there in the bottom right of the map. Antioch is the church in what's modern-day Syria that Paul was a part of. And on his second missionary journey, he went back to Derby, Lystra, and Iconium and those places because those were the places that he had visited during the first missionary journey to see how they were doing and to encourage them. And then he went up more and more towards um, you know, Northwest Asia, and he eventually was in Troas, and he was getting ready to cut back to the right and go further up into Asia, and Paul had a dream. And the dream was that, that you shouldn't go. Actually, God told him, I'm not gonna let you. He forbid him somehow. We're not sure of all the details, but he wasn't gonna let him go up to Northern Asia, but he said, there's a guy over there in Macedonia. Macedonia is to the left. I'll show it to you one more time, where you see Neapolis and Thessalonica and Philippi. If you go on down, you see Athens. That's really modern-day Greece. Um, Bosnia and some of those other places are right there. But across the Aegean Sea there, as you move from Troas to the left, as you look at it, that's Europe. This is the very first church in Europe. And God sent Paul to Europe and said, we're going to push the gospel this direction. Now, just to encourage Paul, I think, when he got there, the very first person that trusted Christ, believe it or not, was an Asian woman in Europe whose name was Lydia who was from kind of central uh, Northwest Asia right there. But then the church started. This is the book of Philippians. And I just want to encourage you with it. I, um, I'm so excited to, to talk to you about this book because, because this book deals with the problem that we're all in the middle of. God loves us. We want to be his people. But dang. Dang. Sometimes... Things aren't working the way that we want. And Paul, a loving leader, wrote a note to these people. I, I told you if I wrote a book to you guys, it would be, um, it would be like the book of Philippians because I would just want to encourage you. I would want to tell you I love you. I would want to tell you how, how much of a privilege it, it has been to start this thing with you. I'm just going to take a second. I'm going to give you a little backstory right here about why I would write a letter like this. Because, you know, um, my story was I worked for 10 years kind of in, 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 a, in Christian athletic camps and just was using um, sports and summer ministry in order to reach kids. And what I saw is those kids would keep going back home and they would get plugged into churches that were a lot like if you're in Dallas, John described the day where it just kind of was people going through the motions and their life wasn't changed. They'd come back the next summer to that camp and they'd go, this year's gonna be different. They'd go back to these kind of dead, limp-along churches that primarily they were all a part of where they were going through the motions. And I finally just said to a group of friends, man, we gotta get in the city and just set up shop. And we gotta be a life-giving um, community to families. We gotta disciple moms and dads so they can disciple their kids 
you know, 51 weeks out of the year, not just give us one week where we can tell them about the hope that's in Christ. I did that really all through the 80s, and then in 91, um, you know, I, I got to Dallas and I ended up teaching a ministry that's a lot like the porch. I would travel and I would speak. I, I did um, kind of porch type ministry, some in Houston, some in the mid city, some here in Dallas. And then um, ended up becoming a teaching pastor at a smaller community, I'd done everything that I could to kind of serve them there. And I saw the whole and, and the aspects of what they were doing as a community. They were just kind of stuck a little bit. And I just said, hey guys, you keep doing what you're doing. I just feel like there's something else for me. I just feel like, I feel like what we're calling people to here just is falling a little short. We're not just supposed to have good doctrine, which we did. We're not just supposed to be nice people, which they were. We gotta be more on mission. And I don't, I don't know if I, if, I don't wanna just support missions, I wanna be a missionary. Actually, my wife and I did as we looked at, um, and, and another couple of friends that we were close to, is we looked around and we said, okay, where is um, the largest number of English-speaking people that need to know Christ? And I just go, Lord, please let the answer be New Zealand. Please let the answer be New Zealand, you know? <laughs> and uh, it turns out it wasn't New Zealand. And uh, it turns out it wasn't Australia. It turns out it wasn't England. It turns out it was the United States of America. There were more people right here in good old US of A, just numbers of people in a language I already spoke, in a culture I was already familiar with, in a place that I already had uh, developed a reputation of, of being just a faithful follower of Christ that, that I could use that relational capital to call other people to something else. It turned out it was right here where I was. Now what was so interesting is that um, about that time, you know, I, I was also uh, getting some phone calls from some friends in Atlanta who were just like um, the small group here that I was spending some time with, and they were just saying, Todd, we wanna start something here. It was in Marietta, Georgia, a really beautiful part of Atlanta, and they were getting ready to start a church. There were some friends that were uh, the very senior part of the Chick-fil-A uh, world, right when Chick-fil-A was just beginning to be Chick-fil-A. And, and they said, come down here and let us just start to reach and serve our community. You know, when I started ministry, I was making about $10,000 a year. And then, even when I was teaching in the 90s, I was making in the 20s about $20,000 a year, and these friends, uh, I had five kids under seven. We were living in a 1,700 square foot home in 1999, and I loved it. It was just amazing, all seven of us, and, and we just one of some of the sweetest times in the history of our family. Love grows in small places, and I, um, anyway, this, this group had me to Atlanta a couple of times, and I go, this really might be where the Lord wants us. You know, that's part of that that land where there's a lot of non-believers, and I, and I eventually brought my wife down there with me. And when I brought my wife down there with me, they said, Todd, we're, we're probably gonna ask you to come and lead us in this mission as we start this work. And, and they said, we just wanna show you some of the places you know, near our, where we're gonna launch this thing and where we think you can live based on how we wanna bless you. And they drove us through the most beautiful neighborhoods I'd ever been in, I and mean, they were gated communities with uh, little swimming pools and tennis courts just for that community, the houses they showed us we're on acre lots with five and six bedrooms. And I remember thinking to myself, there is no way my wife is gonna pray about whether God wants us in Atlanta, right? <laughs> it's over, right? I mean, it's a godly woman, but I mean, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? All right, plus they fed us Chick-fil-A nonstop when we were there, it was amazing. <laughs> there wasn't a Chick-fil-A in Dallas at the time. And so, lo and behold, we get there and we go back one more time. It was the time they were gonna ask us to be the senior leaders of that church. And we landed, we got the rent-a-car, we got in the rent-a-car, this is a true story. And I just grabbed my wife's hand as we started driving to go meet him in Marietta. And I just said, Lord, would you just direct our steps? We wanna do what you want us to do. 
right? We just wanna be where you want us to be. All we wanna do is make disciples and be on mission. I don't wanna lead a church. I wanna be a part of the church. Will you show us if this is where, I mean, we love these people, we love what we see, but we just wanna go where you want us to go. True story. And as soon as I got done saying amen, okay, I let go of my wife's hand and I turned the radio on. And when I turned the radio on, this is the very first thing I heard. God bless Texas with his own hand. True story. I looked at her, I go, that did not just happen. And we talked and we laughed and so, you know, we go, no way. And so you know how songs kind of progress and go forward? So anyway, it was over, and I just hit the radio one more time, and then I heard. God bless Texas. First word. That is the truth, all right? Now look, I don't know, all right? God can do that. He did do that, all right? I'm not sure that's how you should determine, you know, where you should plant a church. But we laughed about it. I actually shared with them that night when I, I just, in my spirit, I just knew. Here's what I knew. I had lived in Dallas for about 15, 16 years, and there were people here in Dallas, Texas that I really loved. And they were for me, and they were praying with me, and they said, Todd, that sounds like an amazing thing. It sounds like those folks are ahead of us, okay? We don't have anything. You ought to go there. But I just didn't feel a peace. I can't say I had a dream and a Macedonian vision. I would tell you a little Texas was you know, calling me back home. But, but um, there was a big part of my heart that just wanted to stay right here and just to do something because I had people in Dallas that I loved that I didn't think we were a part of a community that was really getting it done. So this is the group of friends. Let me just show you why I'd write you this letter. This is just Watermark. Watermark hasn't always been on 7 on LBJ. This is the group of friends that I began just to pray with in the late 1998-99 season, for about a year, we prayed about what God might have us do. Later on, we just started meeting, you know, um, when I, I left that other thing, I didn't even have a job. We'd just meet in the room on Sunday mornings and pray. Eventually, we invited some other friends to come, and so we went to two houses just to pray. And then we decided, okay, man, we're gonna go for it. So at the very end of 1999, when I came back, you know, what happened is that small group of friends, what we decided to do is we just sat down one day and we said, okay, look, Todd doesn't have a job, he's got five kids. There's seven of us, families right here. What, what, do you, what do we all have right now to start this thing? And so we all just wrote down how much money we had right now. We could write a check on this day to start something. And then uh, we said, and, and if God keeps us employed over the next year, how much do you think over the next year we could all possibly give? And so we just wrote those down, those numbers, threw them in a hat, and we took those names out of a hat, and, and we looked and we go, okay, here's the money we'd have today if we all did this, and here's the money that maybe over the next year we could all have, and we said, let's go for it. I took a significant cut from what I was that time, you know, making certainly what I would have made in Atlanta, and we said, we just believe this is what God wants us to do, and so we started. And so um, this was one of the very first Sundays at Watermark. We met um, over in the Lake Highlands area. You can see that was the original logo. We apparently were very inspired by Budweiser, and so we just made... Um, <laughs> You know, that was the original logo. And these are just pictures of actually the very last Sunday. This is the last Sunday. This is seven years later. This is where we were. Kids meeting in orchestra rooms. We met in like 20 different places, but primarily Lake Highlands. You would go into chem labs, and if your kids didn't break a beaker, we'd give them back to you at the end of the Sunday. We loaded and unloaded the truck. We, we, um, every week, we set up children's ministry and did all this different stuff. We destroyed trucks because young interns didn't know how low tree limbs were in certain areas. And it was just a bunch of work. Now let me just insert this right here. In two weeks, we're gonna start again in Frisco. And, um, and, and so 
we're, we're just praying that God, there's already 600 folks who come to Watermark, Dallas or Fort Worth, every week from the Frisco area. And we believe that it's easier for you to really reach and minister to your friends if you stay closer to where you live. And so in two weeks, actually next week, is gonna be the last kind of dry run where they're gonna set it all up in Frisco High School is where we're gonna start. And I just wanna say to you, if you live north up the tollway especially, you know, north of George Bush or certainly north of Legacy, see ya. That's where you need to be if you're on the west side. You need to go up there and you need to invest your life up there and you need to just go, we're gonna serve the community in which we live and we're gonna get it going and it's gonna bless you. You know why these people were hearts were knit together with Paul's? Because they shared the gospel together. They, they um, suffered for the gospel together. They saw life change happen through the gospel they preached together and it just knit their hearts together. In 2000, you know, not long after that, we, we um, had bought a piece of property. This is what this property looked like when we initially bought it. Okay, here's the last picture I'm going to show you uh, of just this. This is, this is Watermark in basically, you know, the year, oh gosh, 2003 through 2007. That's all we had here. We'd still be meeting all over the community. We used to say, I mean, if you can find us, you can hang with us on the weekends. And, and we just slowly put together something here. And it's why... Last year, we took um, a bunch of the folks. This is a picture of the very first group that were members of Watermark. Some folks had died, but by and large, we went to the Bible Museum and, uh, last year, right before it opened, and we just said, I mean, we've given our life to this book and the God that it talks about. And there was 100 of us that started this thing back in the year 2000 and that have just developed this thing and off and running we are because we have been on mission together. We have suffered together and we have seen Christ work together. And I love this body. And I would write you a book like this. You know, this book, when it starts, it says it's from Paul and Timothy, and I'll tell you about that in just a second. And it says, bond servants of Jesus Christ. That's different than the way that he starts the book of Romans, the book of Corinthians, the book of Galatians, the book of Ephesians, the book of Colossians. And even when he writes a letter to his disciples, Timothy and Titus, he doesn't start that way. He starts by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, because he's writing with a sense of, hey, this is who I am. I'm sent forth from Jesus to teach you dogma and truth. I'm sent forth from Jesus to say, this is how the church should be established. Timothy and Titus, when you guys go and found churches, this is the way they've got to be founded. This is the way you name leaders. This is the way you treat widows. This is the way you handle the word of God. I'm an apostle. But when he writes the Philippians, he doesn't say I'm an apostle. He just says, hey, man, I don't need to come at you with a bunch of position. I'm just your brother, and I'm a bond servant of Christ. When I describe myself, I, I, I steal another word from Paul. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, If any man regards me, let it be as a servant of Christ and a steward of the mystery of God. And... Um, Basically, you know, what I just want to do is let you guys know that, look, I, I don't really care if you guys like me. I just really don't. I don't care if other pastors like me. I don't even care if other, um, you know, Christian leaders like me. I care that you guys know I love you. I hope you like me because I hope you see me love you and serve you. But I'm a bond servant of Jesus Christ. 
and I wanna teach what he wants me to teach, and I'm gonna do what he wants me to do, and I'm gonna call you to what Christ wants to call you to, and I wanna do it with you, and I have. I have done it with you, and I've been so grateful that we've been able to do it together. And I wanna tell you, I mean, I just think about how what, what the Lord has done with us, um, you know, and, and, and I'll say this real quick thing too, because some of you guys are thinking, do I really wanna go and start this thing all over again in Frisco? I'm gonna tell you why you do. My friend Kyle Kegler, who was one of those original seven, who's the leader of our Plano campus, and up there leading them today, he just said, man, you want excitement in your life? You want terror? Start a church. You want a sense of awe? You want a sense of all that God can done? Go for it. You want to knit your hearts together to Jesus? Then get out there and take a risk for him. And then, you know, the closest friendships in the world are friendships that are formed in foxholes when you go to war together and you suffer together and you see what God does as you beat back evil together. You want to see your kids grow up really loving Jesus? Then model for them what it means to really love Jesus and say, I'm not going to go to a place that's comfortable just because I can. I'm going to go someplace where there's no beachhead yet, and I'm going to establish it, and we're going to establish something up there that's not there yet, and we're going to love other people. That's what we did. That's what we did. It's a lot of work. I don't know. We, have we rolled the video of just the setup? I'll just put it behind me. This is, this is again, it's like four years in. This is what we used to do every Sunday at Lake Highlands. This was the teardown setup, and that's about what's happened in Frisco, and I'm just telling you, it's worth it. Some of you guys think you kind of rolled in here and somehow, I don't know, we got some rich uncle who died and just bought us a $100 million facility on LBJ. No, man. We gave sacrificially of our lives and then our resources, and we love each other, and we love you, and that's why we did it, and so many of you have jumped in here, and now you are our brothers and sisters. The church in Philippi has grown. And we are on mission here. We're not trying to have some place that's comfortable here. This right here and what we just did in Fort Worth and what we did in Plano and what we're about to do in Frisco in the years ahead, that's either, the, that's either a $100 million mistake or it's the greatest investment in our lives. And I think it's the greatest investment in our lives because we've established something here where we see Jesus being exalted. We see people being transformed. And it's a blessing. It's a blessing, and if I was writing you a book, it would be like Philippians. Hey guys, I know we're not home yet, I know it's not perfect, but be anxious for nothing. But in everything, with thanksgiving and prayer and with supplication, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Hey, we can do anything through him who gives us strength. Doesn't mean we can't build stuff with money we don't have, it just means it doesn't matter what our circumstances are that we go through. We can be God's people. Our God will supply all our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And he who began this good work in us, he will bring it about to completion. That's verse six. The other ones were in verse four, chapter four. As long as we do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit with humility of mind, consider one another as more important than ourselves. We don't merely look out for our own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. As long as we have our, in ourselves the same attitude which is in Christ Jesus, we're gonna change the world. That's all Philippians. Look what Paul says. I wanna pick it up here in just verse three and I wanna read you. This is my heart towards you. I thank my God in all remembrance of you. I, I wanna tell you guys this again. I love you people. This is my church. This is where my kids fall more in love with Christ. This is why my kids, now all adults, radically love Jesus, because they find people who want to live for him. They believe in the God that they have seen work in and through your lives. 
I always offer prayer for you with joy in my every moment in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, for I am confident of this thing, that by the grace of God, as we yield to his spirit, as we pray for one another and spur each other on to loving good deeds, as we practice one another's of scripture, abide to his word and yield to his spirit, he's gonna finish this thing with us. And if we do our job, there's gonna be a Timothy and a Titus after us who are gonna make it even better in the days ahead. And we're gonna finish strong. We're not gonna get more comfortable. We're not gonna just kind of go through the Christian game in motions. No, this is going to be a mission and a better one because there's more of us with more resource than ever. Let's go, church. For it's only right, verse seven, for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you guys have been partakers of grace with me. See, the Philippian people, as soon as Paul left Philippi, and I'm gonna tell you about what that was like, um, they chased him to Thessalonica with money. Say, Paul, what you did while you were here with us, go do it in Thessalonica. A little bit later, he's down in Corinth. Hey, Corinthians, don't give him any money because we don't want you to think Paul's there to start a Chick-fil-A franchise. He is there to advance Jesus. So you just let Paul love you. Guess how Paul lived when he was in Corinth? The church in Philippi. Paul goes and he's in prison. Guess who chases him to prison in Rome? His church and says, we love you. We haven't forgotten you. Are you okay? And Paul says, oh man, I'm okay. For me to live as Christ. If I die, don't worry about it. I'll be home waiting on you. You just get after it in Philippi. But if I'm alive, you can be sure of this. The whole praetorian guard is hearing about Jesus. Let's go, church. He says, you are all partakers of grace with me, verse eight, for God is my witness how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. I do, I love being with you all. I love being not just a pastor here, I love being a part of this flock. I love the way you guys encourage me when I'm weak and help me when I'm struggling and admonish me when I'm unruly. This is my family. And this is the letter I would write to you. Now, this whole thing started, I'm just gonna send you back a little bit. You know, um, if you want to, turn to Acts chapter 16, because Acts 16 is kind of where this whole thing started, okay? Um, we taught almost a year ago to the day, can you believe it? We were in Acts 16 and 17. That's where Philippians came out of. It wasn't written there, it was written in Acts 28, 30 through 31 while he was in prison. I already told you that, right? But... Um, but Acts 16 is when this whole mess started. I'm gonna show you why Paul loves these people. Because basically what Paul did is he went and he hung out down by a river. He talked to whoever was there. He found a fashionista who happened to believe what he said. He moved his operation to her house. He found some drug-induced slave girl that he set free. He got beaten, he basically started a riot, got thrown in jail. There was an earthquake and he started a church. That's Acts 16. I mean, he went to war with these people. Let me just read it to you. It says in verse 11, so putting out to sea from Troas, after I had seen this vision of a person in Macedonia, and God bless Philippi, came on the radio. <laughs> we, which is basically Silas and Timothy and Paul and Dr. Luke, Ran a straight course to Samothrace, which is a little mountain there on the way across the Aegean Sea. 
And on the day following to Neapolis, which I've been to Neapolis, there's really no reason for Philippi to exist. Philippi is not just some um, nondescript, unimportant city. It does actually have some import. Philippi was named after Philip, the father of Alexander the Great. Later, the Romans went in and took it over. It was a strategic city because basically, if you're going to have a trade route that moves from Rome all the way through um, you know, Asia, the Silk Road, um, what you have is the Apian Way or the Ignatius Highway went right through Philippi because it's surrounded by mountains. And you had to go through Philippi unless you were gonna climb the mountains in order to make your way either to a seaport right there at the Aegean Sea or if you were by land, which is what almost everybody was, you had to walk up around that arch and you went right through Philippi. And there was a paved road there that started about 300 BC. And so the Romans, when they became the rulers of the world, they went into sweet little Philippi named after Alexander the Great's daddy. And, and I love it because the name of the city was, was called Colonia Julio Augustus Philippinus. That's what they called it. You know, where are you from? I am from Colonial Julio Augustus Philippines. Where are you from? Waco, you know? <laughs> but, uh, but this city that had this big name wasn't really important. It wasn't like Rome that had this enduring civilization. It wasn't uh, Babylon known for its luxury. It wasn't Athens known for its education and philosophy. There's really no reason that Philippi is on the map or I would have visited Philippi except for one reason. They got a letter. They got a letter from one of God's servants. And God preserved that letter for you and me because he knew in 2018 when, when this extension of the ministry to Europe would make its way even further to North America that we would struggle as we try and be on mission with each other. And we needed to not be anxious. We needed to not be overwhelmed. We needed to have joy in the midst of a world that's not as God intended to be, and we need to be reminded why we're here. We need to do what these folks had done. So anyway, that's where Paul was, and from there to Philippi, verse 12, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days, verse 13. Now, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside. Why? Because there was really no Jews in Philippi, okay? You need 10 Jewish males to start a synagogue. There wasn't 10 Jewish males, and so Jews would gather by rivers for two reasons. One, Psalm 137 says, Back in the days of exile, we used to go to the rivers of Babylon there and we sat down and wept and we would cry that we weren't home because there was no place to worship in Babylon. So they would look for moving living water where they could do ritualistic cleansings in mikvahs. And, um, and so they would go down by the river. So Paul goes, there's no synagogue. That was Paul's model. He would go and see, is there anybody, is any concept of who God is, how he's revealed himself to the Jews, the wonders that he has wrought already? and is waiting during these now 500 years of silence for, for what God's gonna do next. And I'm here to tell them God has done something next. God himself has come. The prophet Isaiah's visions have been realized. The fulfillment of the law has been accomplished. You've been set free because God has come. And he would go and he'd look for Jews. And he thought, man, if there's any Jews here, they're gonna be down by the river. And guess what, there really wasn't. There was, though, a God-fearer. God-fearer was a Gentile that had heard about the Jewish God and basically had embraced the idea. And so Lydia, it turns out, is from Asia, Thyatira, somewhere on the road from Antioch up there to what was Troas, where he launched from. That's where Thyatira was. It's actually, Lydia went back, I think, to Thyatira and, and planted a church. It's one of the seven churches in Revelation that a letter is written to. But... All that to say is that um, he goes down there and he began speaking to some women who had assembled. Interesting. 
isn't it? That the church began with Jesus, his servant, Paul, just finding a faithful woman. You know the very first person in the scriptures that Jesus himself told them, I'm the Messiah. It was a woman. Women have great dignity and value. They are equal in honor and they are beautiful and we need them. There are roles that men play and roles that women play. We're not the same. But let me just tell you something. Jesus loves to work through men and women. And this is gonna be a place that women always thrive. But it's not gonna be a place that just goes and plays to the cultural whims of the day because I don't really care if women like me. I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And he said, hey, when you start the church, this is the roles for men, the roles for women. But boy, I wanna tell you something, men. If you treat women like their role isn't as important in yours because you're the dad and they're the mom, that's a problem. That's abusive. That's not kingdom-oriented male leadership. Women ought to be cherished and honored and venerated and use their gifts for the glory of God and help advance the kingdom and advance the church. And that's gonna happen here. And it has happened here. But we're not playing to every little cultural whim. Oppressive patriarchy, unbiblical. Interchangeability, unbiblical. Godly servant leadership that venerates, honors, empowers, unleashes women for glory, that's God's way. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a fashionista, okay, worshiper of God, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And so Paul moves in with this chick. And Silas and Timothy and Luke. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her master's much profit by fortune telling. Basically, the word there is frenzy. She'd be a drug-induced girl, probably sold by her parents into, uh, uh, into slavery. Um, go back and listen to my message on Acts 16, where I talk about divination, demon possession, and who this girl was and what was going on. She probably was a worshiper of the goddess Python, which was not far from there, and they would drug her up and she would go into fits, and whenever she spoke, people would think it was like a way to hear from the gods. And Paul kept hearing this gal following them, saying, these men are bondservants of the Most High who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation, which is true, but she was doing it in a way that annoyed Paul and, and doing it in a way that Paul said, this is not helping us that a woman with any sense that people would know is not in her right mind is saying these things about us. That's why false teachers always tell you as much truth as they can. I heard a guy say this and I agree with him. The church is never more in trouble than when the, when the enemy of God tells the truth. Because what happens when people tell the truth, you start to believe them. It's why false teachers will tell you as much truth as they can and then they will slide in there their error. That's why it's called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and they don't like to be called Mormons. That's why Mary Baker Eddy and Joseph Rutherford, Christian scientists and Jehovah's Witnesses, talk as much as they can about Jesus, but they pervert him and redefine him. It's why Islam talks about Father Abraham. And so there's going to be some truth, people. Right, but that's to build some trust. Paul says uh, at one point he was greatly annoyed I command you in the name of Christ to come out of you. Let me just fast forward what happens. Basically in verse 20, they brought these guys that took away their money-making uh, operation and they threw the city into confusion and said they're Jews. It started a race riot. Anti-Semitism is at the root of this. 
and, um, and basically they were beaten with rods, they were thrown in jail, and so Paul starts a Christian worship band in jail, he's in stocks, he starts singing, okay, and while he's beaten, probably his back is bloody and exposed, who knows if it's broken, his back is beaten with rods, they couldn't kill him, okay, but they would beat you to the point of death. And they put him in stocks, not kind of the cute little Roman, you know, uh, Puritan stocks. The Roman stocks were put the legs out as far as you can, put the arms out as far as you can, and just be stretched out like that. He's beaten, he's bleeding, and long about midnight, he and Silas just say, okay, man, let's just praise God, because this isn't the, the world we chose, but we're not gonna be anxious. Our God is in control to live as Christ, to die as gain. And so God just threw an earthquake into that little prison, if you kept reading, reading. all right? And the jailer thought, okay, man, the earthquake happened, the jail walls have fallen down, the stocks have been busted open, surely the prisoners are gonna run away, that means the jailer's gonna be executed, and Paul says, hey, man, don't kill yourself. Come here. I haven't gone anywhere, and neither have these guys who can't believe I was singing to this God and praying to this God who apparently has just delivered us. We're right here. And that jailer said, I gotta know that God. So they went back to that jailer's house. He led the jailer and his family to Christ. And guess what they did? Let's go over to Lydia. There's more of us who know him here. This is the beginning of the church. Think about what they went through together. All right? Guy shows up. We have got, um, we've got a, a fashionista, a very wealthy woman who probably owns a home in Philippi, a home in Thyatira. She's loaded. We've got a demon-possessed slave girl who's now been set free. We've got a blue-collar worker and we've got Jews, and they are one, and they love each other, and they are singing, and they can't believe the hope that God has wrought. You think their hearts were knit together? Man, when you go in a foxhole and you start something like that, your hearts are knit together. Let me just show you this. Go back to the very beginning of the book. Philippi. He says, Paul, I told you this is the most autographical book of Paul because in chapter three, verses four through eight, you're gonna hear Paul be very specific about who he was as he reads his resume. He's just reminding them all the things that this world has to offer me, I count them as nothing and a loss. So don't worry about who you are in this earth. And Timothy, Timothy is described in, in, in Philippians chapter two, verses 19 through 22. He says, Timothy is my kindred spirit. Timothy is, you know how concerned he is for your welfare because he loves you. He has got proven worth to me. He's my fellow servant of the gospel. Timothy chapter two says, is like serving me like a child does his father. And we're writing you and we are bond servants. Bond servants are basically slaves that chose to give themselves to their master. Let me just throw this in here right here because when people hear about slaves in the Bible, they go, yeah, what is that about slavery in the Bible? Let me just tell you, Exodus 21 verse five talks about bond servants. It's when people who were slaves, primarily for economic reasons, would say, even though I've kind of paid my debt or um, I've come to the time of my service, even I couldn't repay my debt being done, I don't wanna leave because you've treated me so well. And so that slave would go and put his ear on a door and they would drive an awl through it. You'd be marked, maybe like a cattle whose ear was punched. You would just say, I'm staying here because I love you, because you've been gracious to me, because you're a good master, and I'm gonna serve you the rest of my days. I'm going nowhere, and I am willingly subjecting myself to you. That's Exodus 21.5. It's a bond servant. The words do loss in the New Testament. The slavery that we think of in America is Exodus 21.16. Exodus 21.16 says, if any man kidnaps somebody or finds some other person in their possession and he owns them like cattle, that guy put him to death. It was ignorant, hick, 
uneducated men who did not rightly divide the word of truth, who tortured the scripture to give us permission to institutionalize the slavery that was in England and that was in Europe and that was in America. The Bible never endorses slavery as we've known it. If you want a little short seven minutes on that, there's a podcast called Real Truth Real Quick. What's the Bible say about slavery? I talk you through it right then in a quick way. Don't ever let somebody tell you that a person who knows their Bible would have ever been a part of slavery the way it's been known in our country. But Paul is saying basically this to um, his friends. I am a servant of Christ, and I'm writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus. I mean, you, there's, there's just, there's, the word saint is interchangeable with Christian. Saints are not people that have done two miracles that folks, after they died, have prayed to and something's happened. There is just saints and ain'ts. That's it. <laughs> and the only way you're a saint is if you're in Christ Jesus. The word saint is the word hagios. It's the word holy, and it means separate. And Paul said, hey, don't go build a monastery in the wilderness and separate yourself from the world. No, you, saints, are in the world for a reason. You're here, Watermark, for a reason. To be God's church, and you live in the world, but you're not like the world. You're separate from the world. How are you going to be separate? Three ways. Number one, in your love for one another. This is the only real admonition that Paul puts in the book. In Philippians chapter one, verse 27, he says, listen, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that when I come and see you or remain absent, I'll hear that you're standing together, firm in one spirit, with one mind, that there's no little divisions or factions among you because God's brought us together. We're unified in him. A little bit later in chapter four, um, verse two, he just basically says, hey, Yodi, Okay, and Sintiki, I mean, you guys got to get along. Paul never mentions a guy's name in this book, and he talks about the fact that there's conflict. I'm just, I'm just saying, all right? The gals, we're not getting along. And he just says, stop it. No more cat fights. But it isn't about just the women. He's just saying, hey, Philippian church, you guys got to get together. Love is what marks you. That's the only real admonishment in the book is a reminder that we cannot have little schisms and factions and divisions among us. And then he basically says this. So, so love is important. What's, what else is true of saints? Holiness. What marks a saint is their love for one another and that they're in the people, but they're separate. Okay? In Colossians chapter 2, in verses 14, really through 16, he says, listen, guys, you know why the world isn't working out perfectly for you. So do nothing with grumbling and disputing. Even if you're in stocks, even if you're beaten with rods, Philippians 2.14, do nothing with grumbling or disputing. Separate yourself from the rest of the world who's all beat up. He goes on to say from there, don't just um, grumble or dispute, but a little bit further down, he says, listen, I want you to be individuals that are, are proving yourself to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach. In the midst of a dark and perverse generation, you distinguish yourself as lights in the world. That's who you should be. Hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ Jesus, he can say, see, I put my people upon you. I showed you that there was a different way because there were people just like you born into sin that were separated by Christ. And then the last thing is, is be people of courage. This is what saints are. They love, they live holy lives, and they're courageous. It's why Paul says right there um, in, in 
in Philippians 1, 28 through 30, where he just basically says, don't be alarmed by your opponents if they beat you or throw you in jail. And your lack of being alarmed by them is a sign of destruction for them. You know something they don't know. This world's not your home. If they kill you, they don't kill the soul. Don't you fear the one who can kill your body. You fear the one who can kill the body and get the soul in hell forever. You know something they don't know, so be courageous. Folks, this is what the church is. And Paul loved him. And he's just saying, take heart, be loving, be holy. You don't go to a meeting in Lydia's house. You're Lydia. You're missionaries that are supposed to change your Thyatira and your world. And you're gonna suffer because the world doesn't always like you. But this world isn't your home. Now Paul uses three things, I just do this in the last minute, that he does to basically describe what's going on in here. And it's really important, he uses prepositions. He says, you're in Jesus Christ, you're of Jesus Christ, and you're from God our Father in Jesus Christ. Let's look at him. You are a saint in Jesus Christ. Can I say this to you? If you're not in Christ, you're in trouble. And you're not a saint. I don't care what you do. Uh, this week I was uh, with our buddies, some guys that I lead with at different campus pastors and we were actually down, we were having a long meeting all day long. We had breakfast, lunch, and an appetizer all in the same place all day, never left, just talking about different things. And our waiter was a guy named Jose. And Jose, um, you know, after a while, he, he, you know, over the hours, we built a relationship with him. And I finally just said, Jose, tell me, I mean, you can hear what we're doing. Can you tell what we're talking about? He goes, yeah, it sounds like you guys are, are talking about stuff that you do as friends, you know, in a church in the city. I go, right, we are a church. We're, we're friends, this is what the church is. Do you have a community of friends that are about what God wants you to be about? He goes, oh yeah, yeah, because I keep the 10 commitments. And I just said, I go, okay. Um, he said, I'm Catholic. And I go, okay, well, great, okay. We're Catholic too, all right? The word Catholic means universal. I said, we're not Roman Catholic. That's a particular group of people in Rome that said they were part of the universal church that decided to structure themselves a certain way and have introduced certain traditions of men that we don't think are actually in scripture, but we're both Catholic if we're really part of the church of Jesus Christ. Do you know how you become a part of the church of Jesus Christ? It's not by keeping the 10 commitments, they're actually commandments. Do you know that there was a guy, <laughs> I said, do you know there was a guy that came to Jesus one time and, and said, hey, how can I know that I'm in your family? And Jesus said, do you keep the 10 commitments commandments? And, uh, and the guy said, I think I do. And so Jesus says, great, because the guy responded, I don't murder, I don't lust, I don't lie, and take my neighbor's wife. And Jesus says, great, go sell all your possessions and give your money to the poor and come and follow me. And it says, the guy walked away, Jose, and he was very sad. You know why Jesus said that to him? It wasn't because he needed his money, it was because he was showing him that the very first command, that you should have no other God before me, is exactly what that guy did. That guy loved money more than Jesus. He didn't keep the first commandment, much less all of them. I go, but I think when you told me you keep the Ten Commitments, that means you probably never murdered anybody. You ever murdered anybody? He goes, no, I've not murdered anybody. I go, but have you ever told somebody you hate them or that they're a fool? Because Jesus was talking to another group of people and he said, you've heard it said that you shall not murder, but I say to you, if you'd look at your brother and say you're a fool, you have murdered him. Jose, I imagine you probably, by the grace of God, maybe have never slept with another man's wife. But you know the Bible and Jesus says, that I want you to not even look at a woman with lust in your heart. Jose, have you ever looked at a woman with lust in your heart? Me too, Jose. Jesus says we're adulterous. He says, I gotta get the hell out of here. That's what he said to me, all right? <laughs> I go, Jose, no you don't, bro. You gotta get the hell out of you, is what you gotta do, all right? And here's how. And I told him what Paul told Lydia. Lydia. 
I said, if you're not in Christ, you're not a saint. Jesus is looking for people who are committed. He's looking for people that need to be saved. Come on, Jose. If you're not in Christ, you're in trouble. Secondly, they're not just the saints in Christ Jesus. Look at this. Paul says, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. That's what we are. We're servants of Christ. And we're faithful to him. That's only one we live to please. Thirdly, we are people who, um, who get grace and peace. This is what it says, right? Grace, verse two, and peace from God, our Father and our Lord. You wanna know why you got despair? You wanna know why you don't have peace? Because you're looking for other things to give you peace. The diagnosis you receive may not give you peace. The career you have may not give you peace. The person you married may not give you peace. The sufferings of this world may not give you peace, but Jesus will. In this world, you're gonna have trouble, Philippi, but take heart, he's overcome the world. Let's go, church. Let's go. Father, help us to be your people. Help us to learn from this book. Thank you for the love that we have shared with one another, the joy we have had together, the peace that passes understanding, the chance we have today in our little Philippi to get after it and to change the world. Just like the world shook in Philippi to set the gospel free, I pray because the gospel is set free here, the world shakes, things change. Thank you for the love we have for one another. Help us, Lord, to live radically for you and your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here and you've never come to Christ, ask the person next to you. They'll tell you how. Come up here. I'll pray for you. And if not, let's go, Lydia. Let's go, demon-possessed ex-slave girls. Let's go, jailers. Set them free. We'll see you.